Good morning. As we um, get ready to start this morning, just a, a quick little kind of housekeeping thing. I know many of you have seen um, the uh, new issues ordered down from, from Governor Brown's office, uh, what we're referring to lovingly as a two-week freeze. Um, I, uh, and I don't mean that, sorry, that, that sounded much more snarky than I meant it to. Um, <laughs> I... Uh, <laughs> Much more snarky than I meant it to. Um, and I know there's a lot of questions out there as far as how is that going to affect and impact us as a church, and the short answer is we don't know yet. Um, I do know that at least for the next few weeks, this is probably the last time we'll all be meeting together in the one big group. Um, we're going to have an elders meeting right after service to um, make our decisions. And so... Uh, be paying attention to Facebook later this afternoon, this evening, maybe tomorrow morning, and we'll be posting out what it's going to look like for us moving forward. Um, there's a lot of possibilities on the table, and uh, so I want to, uh, to make sure that we're, we're following um, you know, what's in the best case for the church, but also for you all too. You know, we kind of look at this from two different angles, and I know these can be frustrating in a lot of cases because as Christians, we kind of sometimes walk a dual line. We're commanded in Scripture to follow our authorities on this earth. We're also commanded to follow God. And sometimes we have to kind of weigh what's more important, getting our way or taking care of ourselves, taking care of others. And I don't mean to make that sound like it's, it's a pit thing either, because sometimes it's a, it's a matter of what's best for the body here. And so I want to ask this, and I don't mean to ask this lightly at all, but over the rest of this afternoon, as you all leave here and go home, would you be in prayer for us as the leadership of this church, that we make the decision that best glorifies God? Not that I get my way, that you get your way, but that we follow God's way. We follow where God wants us to go, even though sometimes that's an unpopular choice. I don't know how many times, if you're like me, you ever get into an argument with God? Um, and in the cases he lets you win, has it ever gone well for you afterwards, you know? But I'm, I'm going to ask, uh, actually ask Jeff, I'm going to put Jeff on the spot here. Would you, would you come up here real quick, Jeff? Um, Jeff loves when I put him on the spot, so I'm going to do that real quick. But before we go any further today, I'm just going to ask if Jeff, Jeff, if you don't know, Jeff Rowley is one of our elders, if he would just pray for our leadership here at the church, but also our, our government leadership locally, statewide, in our nation, as we, we head into a very, very difficult time and an uncertain time moving forward. Just ask that, Jeff, uh, if, if you would pray for us in, in this time. Uh, let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity that we can come together as a family of God. And, and Lord, we are facing some unprecedented challenges in a few um, weeks, months ahead of us. And I pray for um, our family. I pray for the leadership of this this church, uh, help us to guide and direct the, the path that this church needs to go. And Lord, I, I just pray for our, our government, we pray for our country, and, and Lord, we all know that we have to pause and reflect upon you, because you are uh, the one that's going to guide us through this. And Lord, we're just so thankful that we can come together and worship you and be in your presence. In your precious name I pray. Amen. Well, I'm glad that you've uh, joined with us today. If you're um, regular, if you're visiting with us, either one, um, 
We started a series last week called United, and um, if, if you missed last week, you're going to kind of get to be dropped in in the middle of this three-part conversation that we started. Last week, we, we started looking at the, this idea of, of unity. Um, you all know what's happened in our, our country over the last couple of weeks. A very decisive election has taken place, and, and for some people, they like the results that have seen. Some are not accepting the results, and we're, we're going to see what happens in the coming days and weeks, and, and it's been very contentious. And what we said last week was this, that as a church, the results of an American election shouldn't ultimately matter because we serve a God who is above all of that. And in particular, we mentioned three things last week. I just want to remind you of of these three statements that, that I made last week, that when it comes to unity, we need to understand three things. The church is the hope of the world. Yes, Jesus is the hope of the world, but we are his bride. We're the bride of Christ. We're the continuation of his ministry. We are our, our, we wear his name as Christians. So therefore, we are the hope of the world. And we said this too, that the church is only as strong as it is united. In other words, a, a divided church is an ineffective church. A divided church really isn't a church, it's a group of groups. It's, it's just a gathering of clubs with different ideas and opinions. And our church should be centered not around any ideolo- ideology in this our culture, our our church should be centered around Jesus. So we said this too, the church unity erodes the moment we focus on anyone or anything other than Jesus. And that's kind of where we left last week. We we, we asked the question about unity, that unity, it's not uniformity. It doesn't mean that we all agree on everything or look alike or sound alike. Unity is the intentional decision that we come together in spite of those differences, in spite of those uh, differences of opinion or differences of, of the way we go about doing things, that's unity. And, and so today we're going to take this a step further because we're going to talk not just about unity in the church and why that's important, but we're going to talk today about how as a church we can take unity into our community and help to unify it. We have a, a, a community that has uh, got a lot of diversity to it. And there's a variety of types of diversity that that exist in our community. And I want to be up front with you today because we're going to hit on a couple of topics that may not be popular to talk about. They may not be fun to talk about, but we're going to talk about them. These are topics that tend to be divisive, but they shouldn't be. They, They shouldn't be because we need to remember who we are. We're the bride of Christ. We call ourselves Christians, followers of him. And I want to just make something very clear as we kind of jump into this this morning. Whether you're here in the room or you're joining us online, I want to to lay this out there. We have one of two options with how we can proceed into our country and into our culture. We can fight it or we can go to it and bring the gospel to it. Heard this, this phrase this week and it kind of stuck with me. You can give people a piece of your mind or a piece of your heart but not at the same time. That kind of stuck with me because a lot of us think sometimes we're doing both. Yes, you can be truthful with people. You can be truthful in a firm and loving way, yes, but here's a, a, maybe a different way to, to phrase that. I want to ask you this question and I want you to think about this. Would you rather win a fight or win souls for Christ? You want to prove yourself in an argument or win souls for Christ? I can tell you which one I'd rather do. And I can tell you this too. I'm sitting here today, and and I told you guys this last week, when all this election nonsense is over with, and January 20th rolls around, and the inauguration day happens, whatever 
our country looks like on January 21st, I still have a God who is in control of our world, of our church, and of my life. And maybe I have to do things differently. Maybe we have to approach things differently, but that doesn't change. Christ is still on the throne. So here's where I want to to set this up a little bit. When it comes to these issues that we're going to talk about today, we in our culture and and, and in probably the, the decades before us have made these politically divisive issues. But the church throughout its history has always faced these issues head on. And, and approached the culture and the community around it, going right at it. The church for centuries was at the core of society. And here in our, our culture, in our society, it started that way. But you know this, over the last few decades, I mean, I'm, I'm 38, I've seen this in my lifetime even, the church has been replaced, and the church is no longer the center of society, it's no longer an influence of society. For many people in society, the church is annoying at best, and threatening at worst. We're in the way of their progress. We're in the way of, of, of what society wants to accomplish. A pastor I used to have said, we're no longer on the, the home team. We're the underdog now. We're going into the opposing arena. And he, loved, he always mixed his sports analogies. It was hilarious. But we're going into the opposing arena to, to have our, our, our battle. And so here's the question we have to ask. Since the church has kind of lost that pull in society, since the church isn't out there uh, leading society anymore, what have we done to replace that? Well, we put our hopes and our dreams into leaders outside the church who are just as flawed as we are. And we put our hopes and dreams in them that they can fix things. But folks, we need to understand something when it comes to society, when it comes to culture, culture doesn't change from the top down. It changes from the bottom up. I heard this phrase a long time ago that, that has stuck with me, politics swims downstream from culture. When culture decides it wants something, it just starts and it builds up momentum. Then you start seeing politics change to adapt to it. We've seen this in the last few years. We've seen this happen. And so here's the question that I want to ask you. When it comes to local community issues, who has a greater impact? Politicians in another part of the state or country or local clubs, businesses, churches? Who has a chance to make a greater impact in our community? It's obvious, it's us. It's the local groups getting in and getting our hands dirty, serving others, taking care of others. And folks, here's what I want you to understand where we're going to go with this today. Churches can have an incredible impact in our communities when we remember to put at the front of our our approach the great commandment of Jesus. Here's why. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is about to give the Sermon on the Mount. And as he, he sets up this sermon, he starts off with what we call the Beatitudes, and he gives blessings to eight groups. And, and here's the types of people that he blesses, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. He doesn't bless the rich ruling class. He doesn't bless the church, <laughs> He blesses those in the church who are hurting, who are suffering. And I think that's intentional because Jesus was always intentional at making sure nobody felt like a minority to him. Jesus went after the ones that everybody else went after, but he went after them in a different way. But right after he gives those beatitudes, he basically gives a four-verse summation of what the church is and is supposed to be. Here's what he says in Matthew 5, verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people put a, uh, light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. What's he saying there? Two things. First, he says we're salt. And we think about salt, we use it to flavor our food. Salt in this day and time was used to flavor food. Yes, but it was also used to preserve food. They didn't have refrigerators or freezers in first century uh, Israel. So they packed their meat in salt and they would store it for the winter so it would be preserved throughout the winter. So what's he saying? Church, we need to be salty. Not salty in a negative way like we might use that term these days. Some of us are. (laughs) No, we need to be going to our world to improve our world and to preserve the gospel for our world. And the light on a hill, we, we get that reference. A light on a hill shows you the area around it. It illuminates. So church, what are we doing? Are we taking and preserving the gospel for our world and illuminating our world for the gospel? That's what Jesus is getting at here. See, here's the problem I think we've gotten into, especially in our our American church, is as the church has lost its influence and its pull in society, we as Christians have, have all too easily stopped using the church as the way to get to Jesus, and what we've started doing is we've started getting on one side of the line or the other, and we take the church there with us. We take it there, and we change it so that it fits what works for us. And I think we've got to be very careful doing that, because when we do that, we take these topics that we're going to talk about in just a moment, and we politicize them rather than spiritualize them. And I think we've got to be careful about that. For centuries, the church has faced these head-on and has dealt with these. And the Bible's very clear. Now, we're not talking about topics like abortion, okay? That's clear-cut. Okay, the Bible's very clear about that. Now, these are topics that we fight and we squabble about today. Here's the first one. First topic we're going to talk about is this. It's economic imbalance. Now, before you start to cringe and squirm a little bit, hear me out. There is a massive divide between the richest of the rich and the poor in our world. Guess what? That's not new. (laughs) That's always existed. It existed in Bible times. Jesus talked about the poor. Jesus helped the poor. But over the last 30 years, that gap has just increased and increased and increased. I saw this stat that blew me away. 30 years ago, the average CEO made about 20 to 30 times the salary of their average employee. Now, the average CEO makes about 300 times the average salary of their average employee. I'm not trying to make a case one way or the other for this. I'm just just stating these facts. Here's why that's significant. The middle class in America, to which a lot of us belong, is dropping further and further down in what we've been able to do. Here's some numbers that, that, that shook me a little bit. The average, over the last 30 years, look at these numbers, the average salary of the middle class has gone up 70%. Okay? Seems, seems good. So you look at this. Inflation over the last 30 years has gone up 76%. Housing is up 85%. Healthcare costs are up 223%. College education, some of you know about this firsthand, is up 307%. That's in my lifetime. I'm 38 years old. 
Now, I'm not, again, trying to make a case for any kind of economic system here. I just want to show you this because here's why this is important. The middle class in America today, compared to 30 years ago, has lost 20% of its purchasing power. The class below the middle class, the working class, has lost up to 50%. Here's why that's important. When it comes to our American politics, that's important because most people vote in a way that's going to benefit them the most. And if your uh, finances are hurting, how do you think you're going to vote? You're going to go try to, to vote a system that works for you. Now, here's why I think this is, is important for the church. Because for centuries, the church has seen an economic issue in our world and went to help it. They've gone to approach it, to fix it. Not to just band-aid it, not to gloss over it, but to fix it. And I think for, for centuries, the church had this attitude that was kind of this inside-out attitude. In other words, we're the church. We want to go help people. We want to go make sure people are taken care of. And in the last few decades, the church, a lot of us have developed more of an outside-in mentality of, no, I need to be helped. I need the church to help me. What can the church offer me? And we, we lose sight of what we're supposed to be doing. The Apostle John was uh, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how he described himself. The last living of the original 12 apostles, uh, John wrote a few books in our New Testament, wrote the book of Revelation, the Gospel of John, but he also wrote three letters that are in the, the end of our New Testament. And in John, uh, 1 John chapter 3, he says these words, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? For John, this isn't just fancy words that he wrote that he hopes to impress you know, his readers with. This isn't just him uh, you know, saying something to say something. No, John lived it. John saw it. John walked with Jesus, and he saw Jesus reach out. You read the Gospel of Luke. It is page after page of Jesus reaching out to the outcast, women, children, minorities. And then John was there after Jesus went to heaven. When, when we see in Acts chapter 2 that the church launches, and one of the very first things that the church does in Acts 2 is they, they, everything they own is shared. It says everything the believers had, they, they had it in common. They shared things with each other, with the surrounding community. They took care of each other if somebody was in need. And then in Acts chapter 4, just a, a couple of years later, John sees this again. Everybody's sharing everything, and they even take it a step further in Acts 4 because it says the wealthiest among them actually sold possessions and property and brought the money to the, the, the disciples and said, here, do what needs to be done with this. They cared about people other than just their own little circle. Acts chapter 6, we see about uh, a group of widows and the disciples moving to these widows and making sure that there was enough food to be distributed to them because they didn't have anybody to take care of them. The church has always been at the forefront from day one of taking care of people who had less than they did. That's always been a priority for them. And folks, here's the thing. When we do this, this is an opportunity to literally put our money where our mouth is. We want to take the love of Jesus to people. Let's help them out financially too. Let's bridge that gap. Uh, I want to be clear too. Acts 2 and Acts 4. This is not like the Bible approving of socialism. That's not, some people justify it that way. That's not what it's doing there. This is a willingness of the people to do this. Nobody forced them to. They did this on their own. And folks, when we as a church begin to move from an, an outside-in to an inside-out way of living, we're going to make an impact in our community. We're going to make an indelible mark for the glory of God and for His kingdom. 
Here's the second topic we're going to talk about today. Talk about ethnic tensions. Now realize here in our community, we're not overly ethnically diverse here. Like some communities are, are, are more homogenous than others. But I think it's easy for a lot of us to sit back and watch what's going on in other parts of the country or other parts of the state, and we just kind of react with an eye roll. We kind of react with, that's overblown. And folks, i got to be honest with you. It's very easy for me to sit here and have that reaction because I've never one time in my entire life had anybody look at me or treat me differently because of the color of my skin, my language, where I'm from, or any of that. Never once had to deal with that. And so it's very easy for me to sit here and say, well, for some people, I think they're making too much of a big deal about it because I've never dealt with it. Maybe you have, and if you have, I'm sorry. Maybe you've dealt with it from the church, and if, if you have, I'm, I'm sorry. But here's what I want to get at, and this is going to tie into our next point as well, too. I want to say something, and this is me speaking from my heart here. There have been a lot of issues back and forth over the last uh, few years about which lives matter, and I'm not getting into that today, but I'm going to say this. God designed us all intentionally. He gave us all a specific color of skin and language and dialect and culture. He wired us all in a certain way. And for us to ignore that is irresponsible. For us to ignore that ignores the creative genius of God. Our diversity isn't something to be whitewashed. It's something to be celebrated. Because that's how God created us. And it also ignores the fact that we are told to take the gospel to all the nations and to celebrate every tribe and tongue. Too often, I think we want people to become more just, just like us. How they dress, how they talk, how they think. And folks, we're not the first ones to think this. This isn't an American thing on our parts. They dealt with this from day one. The Jews were very famous for this. In the Jewish world, in this culture, in the first century, Jews really weren't allowed to interact with people who weren't Jews, who didn't think like them and, 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 and you know, worship like them and eat like them. They were to keep them at an arm's reach. They couldn't interact with them professionally or personally or spiritually. And that was a massive problem, and that's part of what got Jesus killed, because Jesus broke that system up. It was a threat to the Jewish establishment. And his disciples saw this, but even some of them had a hard time following this. In particular, the apostle Peter, the one, you know, Jesus says, you're the rock I'm going to build my church on. That Peter, he had a hard time following it. And we, we see this finally in Acts chapter 10 kind of come to a head because Peter is, is confronted with a man named Cornelius, who's a Roman centurion, not a Jew, a Roman centurion. And Cornelius basically is told, go to Peter. And so they, they, they send for Peter. And Peter comes to his house. And as Peter finally is, is awakened, God had to come to him in a dream. Christ came to him in a vision. Basically said, Peter, dude, it's time to get over it. Here's what Peter says to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 28. He says to them, he's walking into his house, the house of an unclean Gentile. And here's what he says. You are well aware it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Think back to the, the story of the woman at the well. Jesus, 
approaches her, and she's like, you can't talk to me. Jews can't talk to Samaritans. Folks, we need to understand something. As Christians, we need to be aware of the potential damage the church can or has done to people who are different than we are. We need to be aware of that and be sensitive to that because we should never make the church an obstacle to someone coming to know Jesus. Here's the third topic. Ties kind of to the last one. It's immigration. I know this can be a, a hot button for many people. Just in case the first two didn't get you <laughs> tense enough, we're going to end on a high note. <laughs> so listen here, I'm, I'm not here to make a case one way or the other on this. I understand both sides of the immigration issue. And I want to be clear too, I think our arguments on either side of this issue, I don't think they do justice to the whole issue. I think they oversimplify it. You can be correct on both sides of this and oversimplify it. You can say, well, undocumented immigrants come to our country and they, they don't sign up legally and they're a drain on the economy. I think that can be true, but I think it's oversimplifying it. And you can go the other side and say, yeah, but we shouldn't be throwing families out and breaking them up because that's damaging to the family unit. That can be true, and it can be oversimplifying it. I think we need to take a step back and realize that immigration is not just a bullet point line on a candidate's political profile. It's much more deep than that. There's much more to it than this. Because as Christians, for us, this is a very, very spiritual issue. Here's what I mean by that. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear to us in the New Testament that unless you are ethnically Jewish, you're a spiritual immigrant. And God accepted you anyway. God accepted you before you even accepted him. God reached out to you. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 specifically. He says, In those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. Folks, I want to want to be clear about this. I've, I've known two people in my life who were undocumented immigrants to our country. They're two of the better men I've ever met. In both cases, they attempted to legally come to this country the right way. And the system made it so difficult and so expensive and so frustrating that at some point they just gave up and said, I'm just going to keep my nose clean and go about my life. Here's what we need to understand. The church dealt with this constructively 2,000 years ago. We should be able to do the same today. Because here's what we, we need to understand. We need to acknowledge three things here. First, there is a legal obligation we have to pay attention to when it comes to immigration. Yes. There's also an economic issue that we need to acknowledge. Yes. There's also the family issue that we need to acknowledge. Yes. But here's the thing we can't get around. As Christians... As Christians, those of us who bear the name of Jesus, I think that we have an obligation to approach this topic and this subject with compassion. Rather than talk about the system, we need to see about how can the system be fixed? It shouldn't be overly complicated. 
It shouldn't be a massive issue. Folks, we're spiritual immigrants, so we should have mercy on national immigrants. We should have, have mercy towards them. Because once you have received grace, the Bible's clear. You have an obligation to share grace. You know what grace defined really means? Undeserved favor. We have grace from God that we don't deserve, that we didn't earn. And we're supposed to share that grace with others. I know, I know. These are topics that, that some of you are ready to fight me right now. Not say meet me in the parking lot, but I got a meeting after this, so I don't have time. <laughs> Plus, it's, it's raining. I'm not going to bare knuckle box in the, the rain. So I get it. Th- these are topics, and I'm not going to even pretend that in the last 20 minutes we've fixed anything. I'm not going to pretend that. I just want thoughts going through your head. I want the conversation started. That's, that's what I'm, I'm trying to do today. I think it's important that we as the church engage these issues because these are issues that are deeply meaningful to people. And, and I'll be honest, for some people right now, the way the church takes a stance means they want nothing to do with the church, one way or the other, because we're making it about what we like and prefer more than what we're supposed to do. There's a story in the Bible that you all know that ties all of these together. And it ties them together in such a way that we see exactly what Jesus wants us to do in our lives. It's found in Luke chapter 10. And if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. As you're turning there, I want to introduce you to a word. Some of you might know this word, some of you might not. But the word is tribalism. Uh, tribalism is a word that kind of came to, to light in the 90s in, in political arenas. But when we think of tribalism, the definition is really the same definition that's used to describe tribes in Africa who have been at war with each other for decades, if not centuries. And we've seen some, even in the last 20, 30 years, some incredible, uh, incredibly horrific genocides take place by neighboring tribes who, by and large, are very similar and share just a few differences that they can't get over. Or how about tribes in the Middle East? who share a common faith but have a few differences and they have been at constant war for centuries. That's tribalism. This word came to our culture in the 90s to describe the growing rift between the right side and the left side. And it's still used a lot today. Tribalism throughout its history has been the cause of some of the most outrageous and insane atrocities committed to people who were different, specifically to ethnic and religious minorities, Women, children, invalids. And it's been done in the name of something greater every time. And to kind of illustrate this, I want to show you this. This is a picture that that you're all going to be familiar with. I actually couldn't find one of these at home. And if I could have found it, I wouldn't have been able to find all the pieces. Um, Oh, I see. We gave it away to somebody who hasn't had a child quite yet, but in a few months. So it's at Jared's house. So... uh, (laughs) But you guys are familiar with this toy. This is a toy that I think probably every child that's ever lived has owned, because I think you're legally required to have one of these if you have a child. (laughs) But you know how these work. These rings stack on this post, and these rings have to stack in a certain order. But, But this post kind of represents something here, because you can only stack as many rings as this post is high. If this post were taller, you could stack more rings. If it's shorter, you have to take some rings off. And here's the problem that we have, have kind of done in our culture. We have made this, this, let's just pretend that this toy represents 
the USA? What's our post? It's our president. And, and more than a particular president, the post really is the presidency. It's, it's the commander-in-chief, it's who is sitting in the Oval Office, whether it's today, tomorrow, five years ago, five years from now, whatever. That's that post in the middle of, of, our, of our world here. And each ring represents a certain part of our, of our people group. But here's the problem. Over the last several years, in the last several decades, that post representing the presidency in many of our eyes has gotten shorter and shorter. As it gets shorter, what do you have to do? You take a ring off because it can't fit anymore. And eventually you're taking multiple rings off. And here's what I think has happened for us. I think for, for a lot of us, the presidency, really over maybe the last 50 years, we, we've lost a lot of trust in it. Maybe going back to Watergate. I, I'm not, you, some of you who are older than me could, could probably shed more light onto this, but just as a student of history, this is what, I, what I've seen. And as we take those rings off, the one thing we have a hard time doing even if we get a president in office that we like, is making that post go back up. Because maybe we like this guy for this four or eight year stretch, we didn't like the last guy, we may not like the next guy. It's, it's so much more difficult to make that go back up. If you follow baseball, same idea. It's really easy in, in baseball for your batting average to drop really fast. You go on one cold streak and your batting average plummets. It's really difficult to get it to climb back up. And here's the problem. As we take those rings off, those rings become isolated. And suddenly, there's no longer a unifying force bringing them together because we've gotten rid of that unifying force. Now the rings are on their own. And once those rings are on their own, what do they do? They fight for self-sufficiency. And they, they're going to fight and claw to get whatever they can get, almost kind of like animals in the wild, fighting over a carcass, fighting over food sources, fighting over whatever they need. And that's kind of where we have gotten today. And folks, we swing our pendulum so far back and forth when we look through American eyes. Just every election cycle, one group is extremely happy, one group is extremely frustrated and upset. And sometimes that goes back and forth every two years. And as Christians, we need to understand something that when it comes to this, yes, as Americans, our authority is our president. But as Christians, we have a much higher authority that's Jesus. And when we focus on that set of rings, we focus on that post, the littler one doesn't matter that much. We'll realize that we need to focus on the bigger post, the littler post, it doesn't matter if it's short or tall, because we've got Jesus that we're really going after here. Go back to the parable that Jesus used here, Luke chapter 10. You know this. This is the parable of the Good Samaritan. If, if you don't know it, here's the Cliff Notes version. Uh, a, a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's Bible code for he just got done worshiping at the temple. Jerusalem to Jericho is about a 15-mile walk. It takes a couple of days. It's treacherous. It's hilly. It's a great place for, historically, for bandits to hide out and jump out and assault and mug people and rob them. And that's exactly what happens. This guy's walking back to Jericho, gets mugged, gets beaten, gets, gets left for dead. Guy steals everything he owns. A little bit later, here comes a priest, the pastor, walking by. Sees the guy laying there half dead. And he sees him and goes, I could probably help this guy, but I might get mugged too. I'm going to get out of here. And he just goes right on past. A little while later, a Levite, that'd be like a, a, an elder or a, a leader in the church, walks by. <laughs> Says he actually went to the other side of the road to avoid the guy. A little while later, here comes a Samaritan. A little context here. The Samaritans. 
were immigrants. They were half-breeds. They were immigrants from Persia who came in and, and, and married Jewish women who were kind of on the outskirts or Jewish men who were kind of on the outskirts and they watered down the gene pool. Ever use that phrase? And they weren't allowed to, to worship like the Jews were. And the Samaritan, the story goes, takes care of the man. He heals him. He uses his own oil and resources that are expensive and he treats him. And he puts him on his donkey and he puts his own clothes on him and he takes him to an inn and, and he says, here's my money. This is all I've got. Take care of him. And if, if you need more, if, if this isn't enough, I'll come back tomorrow and I'll pay you back. And what I find so ironic about this story is if those roles were reversed and that was a Samaritan laying there dead, that Jew, history tells us, probably would have walked right past. He probably wouldn't have stopped and helped the guy who just saved his life. But what I want to focus on with this story is not the story itself, it's what bookends the story on either side. Because the story's bracketed by two questions. First, by a lawyer, a teacher of the law, an expert in Jewish law, whose goal was to try and trip Jesus up. He comes to Jesus one day and says, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus goes, well, what do you think the greatest commandment is? He goes, well, you're supposed to love God first and then love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus goes, you're right. And look what the guy says in verse 29. He wanted to justify himself. It's like, you know, we never do that, right? We want to justify our own beliefs, so we're going to do it a certain way. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, it's that Samaritan that you hate. He doesn't say that overtly, but that's the story. Because look at what Jesus says as he wraps the story up, verse 36. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? Here's what I find fascinating about this. Because we know the man answers, well, the one who stopped and helped, which is the Samaritan, right? But there's two Greek words for neighbor. And Jesus doesn't just answer the question, he redefines what neighbor means. Because neighbor can mean one of two things. Your neighbor can be near to you or next to you. Now, for a lot of us, we think of neighbor, we think of proximity. People who live on one side of us or another, or maybe, you know, just down the road from us. That's what we think of with neighbor. But the two Greek words that are used here, that near to me would basically be somebody who is far off. Like, that's, that's my neighbor. Somebody who lives within a couple miles of me. Or somebody who lives in my county or in my town or in my subdivision. That's my neighbor. The person I see maybe just throughout the course of the day. That's a pretty big circle for a lot of us. Or is my neighbor next to me? Literally, that means as far as you can reach your hands out and touch. Okay? That's a pretty small circle. For a lot of us, that's about a five to six foot radius, right? Or diameter. Radius is half. Math terms. <laughs> so let's, let's answer the question, which is easier to love? The people in this circle right here Guess who's in this circle with me right now? Me. <laughs> That's pretty easy most days, sometimes. Or spread out. This whole room, this whole group, this whole neighborhood. Which do you think the man really was asking Jesus? Who's the next to me? Is this my neighbor? This person right here? This is my neighbor who I have to love regardless of who they are? Now what do you think Jesus, do you think Jesus agreed with him or disagreed with him? He actually agreed with them. Jesus goes, yeah, that's your neighbor, the person within arm's reach. But guess what? Everywhere you go, you take your arms with you. You're not leaving them at home. So everywhere you go, whether it's this way or it's this way, 
You're going to come across people who are going to get within arm's reach of you. That's your neighbor. You better love them like you love God. Love them like yourself. That's what Jesus is saying to him. Folks, as Christians, we need to understand that this is the moment Jesus pushed the church and shifted the church from an outside-in to an inside-out form of taking care of other people. And we see this, that our neighbor is whoever we come across. Folks, listen, here at Redwood, I want to be clear. If we march forward in unity with that same attitude, that whoever we come across, whoever we touch, regardless of who they are or what they look like, if they, we, we believe truly that they're capable of receiving the same grace that we've received because God died on the cross for them like he died for us. Folks, we can make unity here for the kingdom. There's no reason why we can't walk out of this building and into our community, whether it's GP or, or, or one of the surrounding communities, and make an impact for Christ. Make an impact for Jesus, and grow the kingdom. I've said this before. I want to bring Jesus into Grant's Pass so we can bring Grant's Pass to Jesus. And you can apply other towns in there, Selma, or, or, or Medford, or, or Murphy, or wherever you're at, Josephine County as a whole. I think of it this way, folks. It's easy for us to get into a political ideology Elevate that above the gospel or try to shoehorn the gospel into this. But what we see in these three examples, it's something that I want to, to, to try to live my own life by is this. I want to live my life in such a way that government mandates aren't necessary. That I'm already doing the things that the government could possibly demand from me. That I'm doing them willingly and voluntarily. And I think if we did that, if we did that, if we thought of others more than we thought of ourselves, and how is this going to impact me? Folks, our community is going to thrive because it's going to be a community focused toward Jesus. So here's a takeaway question for you today. I want you to, to think about this today. It's very simple. Answer this question. Who's your neighbor? Who's your neighbor? Father, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're thankful we're thankful, God, that, that, that he, is, he is Jesus and we're not. We're thankful, Lord, that, that he has broken down so many of those barriers for us already and the barriers sometimes that we try to put back up, but God, we can see he's already done it and we can follow him. God, I, just, I pray for myself personally, Lord, that, that I would always put spreading the kingdom, spreading the gospel above personal preference and personal comfort. God, I, I pray, too, Lord, that I would realize my rights as an American are, are less important than my responsibilities as a Christian and my duties as a kingdom citizen. God, I pray that I would be reminded of that every day. God, I pray for us that, that we would be unified around you as we move forward, unified around your son, the one who died on the cross for us, the one who died for all of us. God, we're so thankful for Jesus today. We pray in his name. Amen.